Before we jump in, I wanted to give a heads up that today's story contains references to violence against children, depression, suicidal ideation, and incarceration. Please take care while listening. Resources related to these and other topics mentioned in today's episode can be found on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. As I completed my research for today's story, there was one line I couldn't ever quite get out of my head. Nestled at the top of a 2018 Vox piece that was written by Herman Lopez was this really simple but honestly really harrowing sentence. If you murder someone in America, there's a nearly 40% chance you'll get away with it. But it wasn't the 40% that sat nagging at the back of my mind. It was the 60 Because if the cops can't get it right four times out of ten, then who's to say they got it right the other six times? And that's the exact question we're asking today. Because this is the story of Darlie Rudier. I'm Celicia Stanton, and you're listening to Truer Crime. The story of the Rudier family, in many ways, starts out not so differently than many of my own memories of childhood. It was June of 1996 in the suburban town of Rowlett, Texas, and the two oldest Rudier boys, six-year-old Devin and four-year-old Damon, off from school, had excitedly been looking forward to a movie night in the family's living room. They were going to do a camp out. And so that's how the family ended up spread out across the house that night. Darlie Rudier, downstairs on the living room couch, her two oldest boys on the floor beside her. Upstairs, Darlie's husband, Darren, and their eight-month-old son, Drake. Darren would later say to ABC, When I went to sleep, everything was perfect. When I woke up, it's been a nightmare ever since. But, okay, before we go into just what would happen that night, let's first zoom back a little to where it all started. Just over a decade earlier at the Western Sizzlin Steakhouse in Lubbock, Texas, Because it was there that Darren, who was only 17 at the time, worked alongside Darlie's mom. And it wouldn't be long until Darlie met Darren, and the two were taken with each other pretty much immediately. And they ended up marrying four years later. And then, just nine months after that, their first son, Devin, was born. And Devin, well, you know, his family described him as pretty much fearless He was that kid at the pool, always eager to show off his diving board backflip skills. You know the one I'm talking about. He was really sweet and spunky and ready to ham it up for a laugh. So when his little brother Damon was born two years after him, you honestly couldn't help but notice their differences. Damon was shy and sweet, and his family would tell ABC that at four, he still wouldn't even go upstairs without an adult with him. Darlie worked as a stay-at-home mom, and Darren started his own electronics company, Tesnik. By all accounts, they were living their dream. Darren's company had been making good money, and the family was planning for their future. They bought a house, a new car, and then in the winter of 1995, the Rudiers welcomed their newest crew member, Baby Drake. Journalist Kathy Cruz told ABC that Darlie was a doting mother, And everything else I found from anyone that really knew Darlie basically reaffirmed that. 
She was a pretty 26-year-old. She had a warm smile, bleached blonde hair, fair skin, and hazel eyes. She loved wearing lots of rings and getting dressed up. Her friends and family all described her the same, fun-loving and caring. There's actually this video I watched of Darlie so many times during my research. In it, she's wearing this white shirt under a green apron. She's visibly super joyful and dancing around the kitchen floor. And then finally, she turns and looks directly at the person behind the camera. Smiling, she blows them a kiss. When I watched this video, she could be almost anyone. Silly and carefree. Watching honestly feels almost like an invasion into a private part of her life. A part that will soon be firmly labeled before. I want to take you back to that fateful night in June of 1996. The night that would become the dividing line between before and after. And the one Darren Rudier would later refer to, calling everything afterwards a nightmare. Before heading to bed that evening, Darren had been downstairs spending time with Darlie and the boys. Him and Darlie talked till just after midnight, and then eventually the two shared a goodnight kiss and Darren headed upstairs to go to sleep. Darlie stayed downstairs, partially to keep an eye on the two boys and also partially because baby Drake would roll over in his crib at night and it caused the whole crib to move. Because it was on this hardwood floor, all of his movements were super loud and woke her up. So Darlie ended up deciding like, you know what, I'm just going to sleep downstairs with the kids tonight. And we can assume they all fell asleep. And I think it's best at that point to just jump to the next thing we know for sure, which is that at 2.30 a.m., Darlie calls 911. And when she talks to the operator, she's absolutely frantic, distraught, really. In the call, you can hear the 911 operator just trying to calm her down so she can get the information she needs. But eventually, through a lot of back and forth and crying, a rough story starts to emerge, which is that an intruder had somehow gotten into Darlie's home in the middle of the night had attacked her two sons, Damon and Devin, and had then fled from the home. We have a picture of the floor plan of the Rudier house up on our website, truercrimepodcast.com, if you'd like to take a look yourself. But the family room is where Darlie, Damon, and Devin were sleeping. Connected to the family room is the kitchen, and at the other end of the kitchen is a utility room, which led to the garage. So Darlie said that when she woke up, she saw an intruder, a white man she didn't recognize wearing a baseball cap and dark clothing, And she saw him break away, running through the kitchen, into the utility room, and assumably leaving through the connected garage. On his way out, she says, he dropped a knife. A knife they're pretty sure was the weapon, since it's covered in blood. Darren Rudier can be heard in the back of the 911 call, because awoken by Darlie's screams, he had run downstairs and basically immediately jumped into action, trying to administer CPR to his oldest son, Devin. Unfortunately, these first aid efforts were to no avail, as Devin remained unresponsive. But Damon, the Rudier's middle child, seemed to still be alive and breathing, but in really bad shape. A few minutes into the call, the first police officer arrives, and then soon after that, more police officers and paramedics as the 911 call concludes. First responders make their way into the home and attended to the boys. Six-year-old Devin is sadly pronounced dead on the scene. And so Damon, who is still conscious, becomes the paramedic's focus. But tragically, just a couple minutes later, Damon passes away from his injuries. Darlie, they realize, has also been attacked. Wearing just a nightshirt and no shoes, she's covered in blood from just a few injuries, but mainly from a slash across her neck. They take Darlie by ambulance to the hospital, and when she arrives, they rush her into emergency surgery. 
When she's out and recovering, the police come to question her pretty immediately. And according to a 2019 special episode of ABC's 2020 called Last Defense, Darley said that as she was talking to police, it was pretty easy to tell right away that they were suspicious of Darren. But Darley was clear. She insisted that, no, this was absolutely not Darren. This was an intruder. She did not recognize this person. And one of the things about criminal investigations that stands out for me and my own experience as a crime victim is the secrecy of the process once you've told investigators your side of the story. As a victim or family member, information on the investigation of your case is extremely limited. Many of us accept this sort of secrecy as necessary. After all, a leak of sensitive information can pose a risk to the efficacy of an investigation. But with that understood, it does leave me wondering about all the things we don't take the time to consider, among which the potential harms of this secrecy for victims and their families. With that in mind, I can't help but consider if Darlie Rudier and her family had known that police would only ever thoroughly investigate one suspect in the murder of Damon and Devin, well, then maybe they would have done everything differently. Darlie and Darren cooperated fully and immediately with the police and their investigation. And honestly, that totally makes sense to me. This awful, horrific crime had happened to them, and our society literally gives us no other recourse for situations like this. I mean, I 100% believe had I been in the same situation, I would have been eager to work alongside literally anybody who could have helped me figure out what happened, who did this, anything. But the problem with that is this. Unlike so much of what true crime may lead us to believe, crimes like this are just really uncommon. In fact, according to the Pew Research Center, violent crime, and murder especially, is near the lowest it's ever been nationally, with a 2019 victimization rate of one per 20,000. And yet in 2020, 78% of Americans believed that national crime was on the rise, continuing a more than 20-year trend of perceived crime being out of sync with downward-trending federal crime statistics. But if violent crime is uncommon anywhere, it's especially uncommon in towns like Rowlett, where according to the FBI, violent crime falls 53% below the national average. And there's significant reason to believe that things weren't much different in 1996. In fact, two of the prosecutors on this case would confirm later in an ABC 2020 special that they, quote, rarely if ever got violent crime out of Rowlett. And given that crimes like this are rare, and especially in Rowlett, that means that the folks actually responsible for investigating the murders of Damon and Devon were incredibly inexperienced. In fact, most of the investigators had little to no experience with murder cases at all. And I think that's something that we don't actually think about that often. Many police officers don't have experience investigating murders or even with felony cases, period. In his book, The End of Policing, criminologist Alex Vitale explains that, contrary to popular belief, felony arrests of any kind are a rarity for uniformed officers, with most making no more than one a year. The majority of police officers work in patrol, he says, taking reports, engaging in parking and driving violations, noise complaints, misdemeanor arrests for drinking in public, or possession of small amounts of drugs. Officers Vitale has shadowed on patrol describe their days as 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror, which he goes on to say, even that 1% is a bit of an exaggeration for most officers. But Darley and Darren and their families weren't really thinking about any of that. Darley genuinely trusted police. 
She would later say that she had the impression that the investigation was going really well. She insisted that the police told her that they had hundreds of suspects, that they believed they had identified fingerprints that were likely the intruders, and that they even found human skin under her nails. Darley's impression was clear. It would only be a matter of time before they found the perpetrator. But as it turns out, investigators were actually working from a completely different perspective. That Darley herself murdered Damon and Devin. And they would come to this conclusion rather quickly. The Rowlett police, being largely inexperienced with crimes of this nature, decided to enlist retired crime scene analyst James Crone to assist in their investigation. Crone arrived at the Rudier's home at 6 a.m., just hours after the murders. And according to writer Alessa Dominguez, spent a mere 20 minutes walking around the scene before sharing his conclusion. There was no break-in at this home. And this crime scene? It was staged. No evidence had been examined or tested. He hadn't even spoken to Darren or Darley. But investigators trusted Crone's insight. As they collected their evidence, they did so with the assumption that Darley herself had committed the crime. And they wouldn't need to look very far to find what they were looking for. Because from the very first moments after the attacks, they felt Darley's behavior was a dead giveaway, starting with her 911 call. Investigators would point to a particular section of the call where Darley can be heard talking about the knife used in the attack. According to 911 transcripts, she says, His knife was already lying over there and I already picked it up. God, I bet if we could have gotten the prints. Trailing off, the call continues. But this, police thought, was super suspicious. Why would a woman whose children were literally dying in front of her be concerned with fingerprints? Unless that woman was already planting the seeds of her own defense, a reason why her fingerprints would be the ones found on the murder weapon. Everyone who knew Darley spoke highly of her. They all seemed to think she was a fantastic mother. So how could someone so great just snap like that? Police, of course, had their own theory. Maybe this had been brewing for weeks. During a search of the Rudier home, they found something that they claimed would foreshadow all of the awful events to come later. But to fully explain the context of what they discovered, you have to know that Darley had just a few months prior given birth to hers and Darren's third son, Drake. And while things seemed to be going, well, as normal as you might expect for a family with a brand new baby, Darley did report feeling differently after this pregnancy than she had after her others. Darley and her loved ones would say that she more than likely had been experiencing some symptoms of postpartum depression, and really that's not so far-fetched. The CDC actually reports that one in eight pregnant people nationally will experience symptoms of PPD. And that context is pretty critical. Because according to a 2002 article by Skip Hollinsworth of Texas Monthly, investigators would find an entry in Darley's diary dated May 3rd, 1996, only about a month before the murders. And the entry... Well, it's actually more of a letter to her family. In it, she writes, I hope that one day you will forgive me for what I'm about to do. My life has been such a hard fight for such a long time, and I just can't find the strength to keep fighting anymore. Investigators believe that perhaps this was a sign of a woman reaching her breaking point. Much later, when Darley would be confronted with entry, she explained, yes, she had been contemplating suicide, but... Instead of finishing the letter, she decided to call Darren. Darren was understandably concerned, and he basically immediately came home to be with her. 
and she never did actually attempt to harm herself. And while I don't know whether or not Darley was able to receive treatment for her depressive symptoms, I do know the stigma against mental health is still really high. So I can only imagine how much more intense that may have been in Texas in the 1990s. Despite that, though, I did find some more info in that same Texas Monthly article that I referenced earlier. And it actually mentions that Darlie's close friend, Barbara Jovel, had encouraged Darlie to try out counseling as it had been helpful during her own depression. Recounting this conversation, though, Barbara didn't get the vibe that Darlie was desperate or self-destructive. In fact, she said that Darlie was acting the same as she always had. But despite the fact that this entry was likely the result of postpartum depression that Darlie had been experiencing, the depression that, by all accounts, she had been recovering from, and despite the fact that nowhere in Darlie's entry does she indicate that she planned to do harm to anyone other than herself, it wasn't sufficient to relieve investigators of their suspicion. The diary entry, they believed, was the tip of the iceberg. They were also convinced that Darlie's wounds were self-inflicted. While Damon and Devin had both been fatally stabbed, Darlie's injuries were distinct. Rather than being stabbed deeply straight up and down, Darlie's neck had been cut across an injury that may have looked much worse than it actually was because, according to the hospital staff who treated Darley, her wounds were not life-threatening. Her doctor and nurses would also later point to Darley's flat affect during her hospital stay. They said it was odd behavior for a grieving mother. But for investigators, all of these items were really just the beginning because it would actually be an event that took place six days after Damon and Devin's death that would truly send shockwaves through the case. Because that day was Devin's seventh birthday. And it was at his gravesite that a local news crew would capture footage of Darlie and her family hosting what seemed like a party of sorts. In the video, Darlie can be seen with her family. She's singing happy birthday. She's smiling. She's spraying silly string over the gravesite. The video would eventually garner significant backlash from the public. People at home watching felt like Darlie's behavior was entirely inappropriate. It certainly wasn't what folks felt like a grieving mother should be acting like six days after the death of two of her children. And in the eyes of investigators, this was just another sign of what they already believed. Darlie Rudier was a killer. But it wasn't just Darlie's demeanor investigators took issue with. The physical evidence, they believed, also painted a less-than-stellar picture, and it had to do with Darlie's description of the night of the murders. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. While the details of Darlie's memory were honestly a bit fuzzy, the general sequence of her version of events remained pretty much the same. One minute she's asleep on the couch, her boy sleeping next to her. The next she's awake and suddenly aware of an intruder in her family room. An intruder who is now making their getaway fleeing out of the family room into the connected kitchen, then running through the utility room, which led to the garage. From here, the intruder would have had only one escape route, a garage window no more than a foot or so off the ground. The garage door itself was found closed and locked from the inside, while the window was found with its screen slashed, 
a perfect escape route. But the problem is with proving that an intruder was ever actually in the home at all. And that's because, aside from the cut screen, investigators believe there were no signs that anyone ever entered or exited the home through that window. First is the dust on the windowsill, which police say was completely undisturbed when they arrived on the scene that night. And additionally, outside of the window, there's this mulched area. And that area, also completely undisturbed, meaning that no one stepped through it on the night of the murders. Even the back gate was found closed. And how could it be that an intruder making a run for it after committing a heinous crime would have had the time and the foresight to be sure to close and latch the gate behind them on their way out? And that's just where things start going south for Dali, because the other big piece of physical evidence they find is even bigger. The knife used in the murders was a knife pulled from the Rudier's countertop butcher block. So as investigators are going through the house, they examine the other knives in the block, one of which is this serrated bread knife. They send all the knives back to the lab for testing, and when they do, they find something really interesting. A small, singular fiber, unviewable to the naked eye, only 60 microns long. Fiberglass. And if you remember, the big piece of evidence that pointed to the validity of Darley's intruder story was that cut window screen in the garage. A window screen made of fiberglass. The same fiber found on that kitchen bread knife. Fibers that, according to the state's expert analysis, looked remarkably similar. And while, sure, an intruder could have used one of the Rudier's own knives to commit the murders once they were in the home, they couldn't possibly have used the Rudier's knife to break in. For investigators, it backed up James Crone's theory. Darlie Rudier had staged the crime scene, taking the bread knife from her own kitchen to cut the window screen and lend credibility to her version of events. But innocent till proven guilty was maybe more of a formality in this case, because two weeks after the murders of Damon and Devin, the front page story of the Houston Chronicle began with a graphic description of investigators' theory. Darlie Rudier slashed a garage window screen to throw police off track, then went back to her sleeping boys, ages five and six, and stabbed them repeatedly, striking so hard she broke ribs according to a police affidavit. She placed the murder weapon on the garage floor for the police to find, and then she went to the kitchen sink and inflicted shallow stab and slash wounds on her neck, shoulder, chin, and fingers, investigators said. And I don't know about you, but when I read this article, I couldn't help but think about the fact that this opening leaves such little room for the possibility of Darlie's innocence. The quotes from police and their affidavit are inserted into the piece in a way that feels more statement of fact rather than accusation. The description is graphic to the point of unnecessary, likely to render an automatic emotional response from anyone who reads it. Based on this news clip, it's hard to imagine that Darlie Rudier could be anything but a monster. Perhaps readers were relieved to discover at the end of the article that Darlie had been arrested just 12 days after the murders and was now in jail awaiting her indictment. Perhaps they would have been unfazed to hear that Darlie would remain in jail all the way up to her trial nearly seven months later. Perhaps they thought monsters should be locked up. But it raises an important question. What if Darlie wasn't a monster after all? 
In the days following the arrest, Darley and her family were in absolute shock. They remained adamant. The police had it wrong. According to an article in the Houston Chronicle, while Darren couldn't be reached for comment, he had changed his voicemail to say people should, quote, not believe everything the media is saying. And all that evidence the police said they had, Darley's supporters weren't having it. They were convinced. The cops had it out for Darley from the start. They were never really investigating who committed the murders. They were investigating how to make the evidence fit the story they wanted to tell. And let's start with the 911 call, the one where Darley mentions picking up the knife. The police claimed Darley's comments were suspicious. But as I was reviewing this case, I listened to the 911 call, and I'd like to play a clip for you now. But before I do, I want to mention a couple of things. First, the audio is honestly a little bit difficult to understand. That said, if you're listening in headphones, I think you should be able to make out enough to take away what's most significant. But secondly, and this is most important, this call is emotionally really hard to listen to. And I wanted to give that content warning up front. This audio has been widely circulated online, not just by those who feel Darley is guilty, but also by Darley's supporters, including Darley's close family and friends. For them... The evidence in this case, including the audio of this call, are important to the overall picture of what really happened. And I agree. That said, I want to emphasize that the Rudiers are real people who, regardless of the exact details, went through something extremely traumatic the night this call was placed. You'll be able to access the full link to the call on our website. If you think listening may be too difficult, please fast forward a bit. Here's the clip now. Ultimately, this call only makes one thing super clear for me. This idea that Darley was just going around, volunteering information about her fingerprints being on the murder weapon, it feels like a major misrepresentation of facts. I mean, at best, it's completely devoid of context. Darley had been prompted by the operator about the knife. She tells Darley not to touch it. I really don't know if I buy that it would be that unusual for Mother to be panicked that she has already violated one of the first things the operator says she should do to assist the investigation. And then, of course, there were Darlie's injuries. And looking into this part really sent me down a rabbit hole because the police claimed that Darlie's injuries were self-inflicted, a theory supported by hospital staff who say that not only were Darlie's injuries non-life-threatening, but also that her attitude in the hospital was just really off. And what's weird about this to me is just how much conflicting evidence there is on this. In fact, it turns out that the supposedly superficial cut on Darley's neck was less than two millimeters from her carotid artery. An artery that, if cut, would have likely killed her in seconds. Darley was also rushed into emergency surgery once she reached the hospital. And to me, that seems like a really odd reaction to a superficial cut. 
though Darley's doctor would later claim that the surgery was just his due diligence so he could fully examine her injuries. But regardless, it doesn't seem to take away from the fact that the injury was certainly serious, if not ultimately life-threatening. Not to mention a number of other things I found to be pretty intriguing that ended up coming out later. For one, the hospital staff would eventually testify for the prosecution that Darley was unemotional and even whiny. But their accounts seemed to contradict their own notes on record from Darley's stay. Darley's hospital records were released to the public, and in reviewing them myself, I found numerous comments which describe her as pretty distraught. Hospital staff used words like tearful, frightened, or even very emotional to describe her demeanor. I wasn't able to find any notes that supported the flat affect that hospital staff claimed they witnessed. Additionally, Darley's defense would later bring forward expert testimony from San Antonio's chief medical examiner, Dr. Vincent DeMaio. And this guy was pretty legit. A board-certified anatomical clinical forensic pathologist and editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology. At the time of his testimony, he had performed and supervised a combined 27,000 autopsies. So, I mean, this dude, he knows his stuff. And he would actually testify and say that Darley's injuries were totally inconsistent with any self-inflicted wounds he'd ever seen. He stated that in his expert opinion, Darley's injuries were both very serious and likely committed by someone else. He noted that Darley's hemoglobin dropped significantly during her stay in the hospital, from 11.6 to 9.6, which he explained indicated that she must have lost a significant amount of blood. But bigger than that, he says that even if these wounds did appear more consistent with other self-inflicted injuries that he had seen, he still wouldn't suspect that they were in this case, because Darley was right-handed. There are several photos of Darley's injuries from the investigation that have been released to the public, and in the images of her neck, you can see from the stitches that she has that Darley's cut started on the right side and then angled down towards the lower left side of her neck. And according to Dr. DeMaio, herein lies the problem. Because in order to cut your own neck, it's much more natural to grab the knife, turn it toward yourself, and begin cutting from the opposite side of your dominant hand. In order for Darley to have made this cut with her right hand, she would have had to hold the knife in an extremely awkward position. And sure, that doesn't exclude the possibility that Darley could have held the knife in her left hand to inflict the injuries, but it doesn't seem likely. Dr. DeMaio explains that in situations like these, individuals will nearly always take the easiest path to inflicting their injury, using their dominant hand and cutting in the most natural way possible. It just didn't make sense that Darley, who, according to the prosecution's theory, was attempting to stage a crime scene in a really short period of time, would have had the forethought to cause her own injuries in such a difficult way. There were easier options available to her. But with all that aside, it still leaves the physical evidence. And I wondered, what about the garage window? Based on the evidence left at the home, it seems like this window would have been the only logical entry and exit point for an intruder. But police point to the fact that neither the windowsill dust nor the mulch outside the window were disturbed. But according to ABC, Darren Rudier, convinced of his wife's innocence, would actually go on TV. And he demonstrated why the police's theory, he believed, was complete crap. First of all, he points to the fact that this window is so close to the ground that a person could step through it and into the garage without ever touching the windowsill. 
And I mean, I've looked at the pictures of this window. It's literally maybe a foot off the ground. And Darren's point makes sense. And then right there on TV, he proves it. Stepping into the garage easily without ever touching the windowsill. And that mulch that they say was undisturbed? Two big issues. Number one, the investigators who did the test on the mulch to see, okay, if someone walked into this mulch, would it look disturbed? They found that it would likely only ever show any signs of disturbance if someone ran through the mulch. When investigators walked through the mulch, there was nothing to indicate it had ever been walked through. On top of that, the mulch wasn't even in the direct path of the window. It was off to one side, and directly below the window was actually cement. So easily, someone could have stepped through right onto the cement and headed off the property, never touching the windowsill or the mulch. But even if the physical evidence did support Darley's story, many folks deeply felt that her behavior alone was reason enough to suspect her guilt. And nothing seemed to prove that more than the graveside silly string video, a video that would be a major mark against Darley throughout the entirety of the investigation and trial. And ultimately, what's really interesting about the video to me is that just like the 911 call, it feels taken completely out of context. Darley's friends and family upheld that there was absolutely nothing wrong with the celebration. They said Devin was so excited to turn seven. And before his passing, they'd actually completed plans for his birthday party. The invitations had even been sent out. To them, the silly string and the singing and the smiles, like these were ways of honoring a little boy that they deeply loved. And in fact, before they had this so-called birthday celebration for Devin, the family actually held a memorial service. A memorial service that was, by all accounts, very traditional. Darley was pretty distraught crying and grieving the loss of her boys during the whole thing. In context, the Silly String video seems a lot less like a party and a lot more like a way for a grieving family to celebrate their son's memory in the midst of a tragedy. But then there's the biggest piece of evidence we talked about. That bread knife with the microfiber that seemed to match the cut screen in the garage. But even that piece of evidence feels like a lot less of a slam dunk when you consider the fact that cross-contamination could have skewed the findings. As it turns out, many of the items in the home were fingerprinted before being sent back for further testing. And not only was the screen fingerprinted directly before the knives in the butcher block opening up the possibility that a small fiber invisible to the naked eye may have possibly been transferred to the bread knife, additionally, the fingerprinting brush itself was also made of fiberglass. And while the prosecution would claim that the fiberglass of the fingerprinting brush appeared inconsistent with the fiberglass found on the bread knife, the fact that only one extremely small fiber was found meant that there wasn't enough for significant testing to better confirm that the fiber on the knife was truly 100% consistent with the fibers found on the screen. And what's most wild about all of this to me is just how much of a smoking gun this bread knife is for so many people. And on face value, that knife, yeah, it doesn't look good. But upon further examination, there's just so many potential explanations here. It's indicative, I think, of how so many of us think about the criminal justice system broadly. When it's not your life, it's easy for these systems to become just these abstract things. 
And when something is abstract, it's no longer vivid. It loses all of its color, all of its nuance. And that's really dangerous. I think far too often, injustice sits in the dim corners where nuance used to be. But even outside of all of this, Darlie and her supporters point to a few pieces of evidence that they say could really prove her innocence. The first, a bloody fingerprint left on the family's glass coffee table. The print couldn't be definitively matched to Darlie, Darren, the boys, or any of the investigators coming in and out of the home. But fingerprint matching isn't what you could call an exact science. The investigators could easily overlook the print by saying there just wasn't enough detail in it to make an identification. Maybe it was Darley's. But another piece of evidence was harder for police to overlook. According to ABC, in the hours after the murders, investigators happened across a sock next to a sewer drain about 75 yards from the Rudier home. They noticed two tiny red stains on the sock. And so they decided, let's send this back for testing. Test results confirmed that the sock contained blood from both Damon and Devin, but importantly, not from Darley. But investigators were quick to find an explanation for that too. Yep, that makes sense. Darley must have planted this here in an attempt to substantiate her story that someone else had been in the home that night. And that seemed pretty immediately unbelievable to Darley and her family, and I kind of have to agree. We know that her wound, superficial or not, bled a lot. Her blood was all over the crime scene. Pretty much everywhere Darley went, she left a trail of blood behind her. And this sock? It was 75 yards from the Rudier home. That's 225 feet. And let me put that in perspective. The round-trip distance between the Rudier's home and where the sock was found is nearly the length of one and a half football fields. That's not a close enough distance that someone could just throw something. That leaves a couple of major problems. First of all, not only was Darley's blood not found on the sock, it wasn't found anywhere near it. In fact, Darley's blood was never found anywhere outside of where she claimed it to be in her home. And other folks like Skip Hollinsworth of Texas Monthly point out that if Darley really wanted to plant the sock, wouldn't she have left it closer to the house where it definitely would have been found by somebody? Wouldn't she have covered it in more than just a couple of drops of blood to make sure it stood out? The fact that police found the sock and decided to send it back for lab testing at all was pretty miraculous. And I mean, honestly, all of this points to the biggest issue I have concerning Darley's guilt. And that's the timeline. In order for Darley to have planted this sock, she would have had to run 75 yards down the block and 75 yards back. We know she couldn't have been bleeding at the time because there's no blood outside. So that means in order for investigators' theory to be correct, Darley would have had to attack her children, get a little bit of blood from each of them onto the sock, run a football field and a half to plant the sock, and return home all without being seen, use the knife to cut her neck, hand, and arm, do whatever else she felt she needed to best stage the crime scene, all before waking up Darren and calling 911. But if that story doesn't already sound pretty outrageous to you, then it might once you hear this. We know from the testimony of the medical examiner who performed Damon's autopsy that once the last of his wounds were inflicted, he likely would have only lived for about six to nine minutes. That means that Darley would have had at most nine minutes to stage the crime. 
But this timeline gets significantly shorter when you consider that most of the time is already accounted for. Darley made the 911 call at 2.30, and the call lasted for 5 minutes and 44 seconds. Towards the end of the call, the first officer arrives on the scene. After the call ends, about a minute more passes before paramedics come into the home at around 2.37. The paramedic tending to Damon testified that he was still breathing for a few more moments before he stopped, putting Damon's exact time of death around 2.38 a.m. Considering the 911 call began at 2.30, and Damon likely lived at most nine more minutes after being attacked, that gives Darley a maximum of 60 seconds to plant the sock, self-inflict her injuries, stage the rest of the crime scene, and wake up Darren all before dialing 911. But even outside of all of this evidence, for me, there's another truly baffling hiccup. How could a woman with no history of abusing her children, a woman who was known to be bubbly and kind, a woman who by all accounts absolutely adored being a mom, go from a living room, movie-watching slumber party with her kids to murdering them in cold blood. It just didn't make sense. It really seemed to me like investigators had no idea about a motive. But maybe they didn't need one. Not long before the chaos of the Rudier case, another mother was actually in a media firestorm of her own. Susan Smith was a 23-year-old woman from South Carolina and I found this article written by New York Post reporter Gabrielle Van Rouge, which explained that Smith, and this is a quote, told police an armed black man stole her car and drove off with her two sons inside. For nine days, the teary-eyed woman would appear on national television, pleading for the safe return of her babies. And please understand that when I say that this story captivated the nation, I mean it captivated the nation. So when it came out that Smith herself had actually murdered her two kids, three-year-old Michael and one-year-old Alex, the public was shocked, and the details were horrifying. Susan Smith, with her kids in the backseat, drove to the edge of a lake's boat ramp, placed her car in neutral, and just hopped out. Smith had lied to the whole world for nine days straight. And it was Black folks, of course, who were the first to point out the extreme racism of Smith manipulation. I was reading a New York Times article from 1994 when this all happened, and there's this quote from Harvard professor Dr. Alvin Poussant that I think really sums it up. Susan Smith was in tune with the racism in society. She knew what would work best to direct attention away from her. Point the finger at a Black man. And according to that same New York Post article I read to you from earlier, Susan Smith claimed that she had no real motive and that she had deeply loved her children. And even though Smith would be convicted of her crime, the legacy of her actions definitely lived on outside of prison walls because it would be her case that so many would reference as Darlie Rudier's rose to national prominence. News outlets were at the ready pretty immediately, calling Darlie another Susan Smith. And that comparison completely baffles me. Darley and Susan were both white mothers and both were accused of killing their young sons. But to me, that's about where their similarities end. Because, hello, the unique thing about the Susan Smith case is that she was super racist. Darley Rudier accused an intruder of murdering her sons, sure, but she always claimed that this intruder was white. 
For the public to go around calling Darley the Texas Susan Smith is to completely ignore all of the racism in Smith's case. And at that point, what are we even comparing about the two women? That they were both mothers accused of something awful? When you strip Susan Smith's story of her racism, the takeaway is boiled down to a super unnuanced and pretty dangerous conclusion. Well, of course you can't ever really trust a mother. It honestly begs the question of why these types of stories appeal to the public in the first place. It reminds me of this BuzzFeed article I read recently. Why are we obsessed with mothers accused of murder? In it, the author, Lessa Dominguez, describes our public fascination with a theme she calls the murderous bad mother. The article talks about how these stories often become even more appealing if the mother doesn't fit the mold of what society deems acceptable motherly behavior, i.e., tame, white, and suburban. Do you talk a little too much? Have a few secrets you'd prefer to keep to yourself? Does your mourning not feel real enough to folks watching you from their sofa? All of that is grounds for public condemnation and public obsession. But what was really wild to me about all this was just how many cases, regardless of guilt or innocence, the author could apply this to. Alice Crimmins, John Benet Ramsey's mom, Patsy Ramsey, of course, Casey Anthony all perfect examples of stories that followed this theme to a T. And Darlie Rudier's case was no exception. In fact, it was actually because of the massive media attention surrounding her case that Darlie's defense lawyers petitioned to have her trial moved to a different county. They basically said, like, look, Dallas County has been reporting a ton on this case. It's been all over the news. There's just no way Darlie would get a fair trial here. And in what seemed like a win for Darlie, the judge granted the change of venue request. But any excitement the defense may have felt must have been pretty short-lived because then they discovered that their Dallas trial would be moving to the ultra-conservative Kerr County, Texas. And trust, this move was a major blow to the defense because Kerr County had a history of being extremely tough on defendants, especially with death penalty cases like Darley's. According to journalist Kathy Cruz, Darley's own attorney, Doug Mulder, would say to one of his colleagues, Richard Mosty, Mosty, if anybody ever kills me, I want you to make sure they get tried in Kirk County. According to Kathy Cruz, there were even rumors circulating that the only reason that Judge Mark Toll even agreed to the change of venue in the first place was because he was hoping to be in Kirk County for the upcoming deer hunting season. And, you know, Toll and his wife would insist for years that this was totally untrue and that Kerr was selected because it was the only one with a big enough opening in their docket. But Darley's mom, who's remained one of Darley's fiercest advocates, said that she called all of the counties in Texas to see if it might be possible to move the case anywhere else. And she says that numerous other counties had openings. But regardless of any of that, Judge Toll denied the motion to have the case move back to Dallas. So Kerr County it was. And frankly, it was the perfect venue for the story that the prosecution wanted to tell. According to ABC, Darley said that she felt going in, it wouldn't be the state needing to prove her guilty. Instead, it would be her proving her own innocence. Ultimately, the prosecution's strategy was pretty much crystal clear straight from their opening statement. This case would center more than anything else on Darley's character. And I want to kind of summarize these opening remarks because I think they really emphasize the tone the whole trial would end up taking on. Starting off, Prosecutor Greg Davis explains that, you know, Darren, he was this really hard worker. 
He owned his own electronics business, and he was doing really well for himself and his family. Things were going so well in 1994 and 95, in fact, that as the family's income grew, they started making all of these lavish purchases. Davis then started listing off a ton of different things that he says they bought with this income. Fancy clothes, a light-up fountain, jewelry, a jaguar, a hot tub for the backyard, a boat, nice vacations. They're just buying, buying, buying. Not reinvesting any of the money back into the business, just buying more things. And then things start to change in the winter of 1996 when Darlie has a baby. And now this baby and Drake and Darlie's other two sons, Devin and Damon, are starting to keep Darlie super busy. And then the prosecutor continues by saying, and I'm going to quote this, adding to her problems, right? Because he's really setting up this idea that Darlie viewed her own children as a problem. So he says, adding to her problems, Darlie was having trouble losing her pregnancy weight. And that was happening at the same time that Darren's business was starting to flatten out just wasn't bringing in the same income that it had before. And I mean, at this point, I just want to read to you verbatim from his opening statement, because I think it really highlights how the prosecution treated Darlie and honestly, how the press treated Darlie throughout the entirety of this trial. So Greg Davis says, when we come to June the 5th, 1996, the evidence is going to show you that those problems began to worsen and they had worsened over time. By that date, this defendant right over here still had not lost the weight that she had gained during her pregnancy. And that had led her to, by June the 5th, 1996, to begin taking diet pills in order to try to get back that figure. She was no longer the glamorous, blonde center of attention by that date. This is really just the start of a trial focused primarily on character assassination. A lot of time and energy was spent during the trial portraying Darlie as materialistic, as vain, as a bad mom. Pointing to just one example from the trial transcripts, there's a moment when one of the doctors who treated Darlie in the hospital is being questioned on the stand about her injuries. There's some back and forth, and then eventually the prosecution asked the doctor, at the time that you saw Mrs. Rudier, did you know whether or not she had breast implants? This question seemed to serve the prosecution little to no benefit, and yet objections by the defense were denied. Darlie's breast implants were just one of many points that the prosecution wanted to drive home about the type of woman she was each new revelation aiding to the story that they're building. Darlie, with her bleached blonde hair, pawn shop jewelry, breast implants, and flashy clothing, was a selfish, materialistic person who cared more about losing weight than her own children. Never mind that no one who actually knew Darlie in real life ever described her that way. And if you're thinking that no jury, especially not one with seven women, could ever be convinced by such a clearly sexist strategy, then unfortunately you'd be mistaken. One juror, Carrie Paris, would remark to ABC, who goes out and spends $2,000 on a set of breasts? That was one of the things that really caught our attention. Pictures of the clothing she was wearing were very flashy. The way she lived doesn't make her a killer, but it does bring suspicion. And that's the thing about character evidence. It doesn't actually need to prove anything. It just needs to breed enough distrust to kick up a gut feeling. And so when that infamous Silly String video was played for the jury, well, kicking up a gut feeling? That's putting it lightly. And according to a Texas Monthly article written by Skip Hollinsworth, lead prosecutor Greg Davis didn't pack any punches. Here's a mother who has supposedly been the victim of a violent crime, he said. 
She had just lost two children, and yet she's out here literally dancing on their graves. But for Darlie's family, this accusation was just ridiculous. Not only did they know that the silly string was never Darlie's idea in the first place, turns out the idea had originally come from one of Darlie's family members, but they also continued to insist that they never saw any harm in the celebration at all. It was held to honor Devin's life, not to celebrate his death. But even better, the defense had access to a tape that could potentially blow up the state's entire argument. And what was on it? That memorial service that was held by the family before the birthday celebration. You know, the one where Darlie was crying and just really clearly distraught. Only problem? Darlie's defense would never show that tape to the jury. Her lawyer, Doug Mulder, just didn't feel that the silly string incident would play a major role in the jury's deliberation. But he would be wrong. ABC would air a taped interview of one juror's take. The silly string party? That was the icing on the cake. And while this blunder from Darlie's defense was a pretty huge one, it becomes almost understandable when you consider that Mulder was given just months to prepare a defense for Darlie's death penalty case. According to the ACLU, death penalty cases require lawyers who are extremely knowledgeable and able to spend literally hundreds of hours preparing for trial. And while ABC did report that Darlie's lawyer, Greg Mulder, was a very well-known and highly sought-after defense attorney, even he had difficulty not dropping the ball with only three months to prepare. Darlie had been assigned a public defender for the first three months after being charged, but Mulder wasn't approved to take over the case till a late October hearing. And when I discovered this, I just couldn't help but think, really? This is a death penalty case. That means that someone's literal life is on the line. And the state found it absolutely reasonable to say, yeah, we'll give you three months to get ready. See you in January. I mean, even if we factor in the extra three months that Darlie had been working with a public defender, six months? That's no time at all to prepare for a trial with life or death stakes. And Darlie and her family paid a lot for her defense team. According to ABC, many folks speculated that perhaps Mulder was even a bit overconfident given his high level of expertise. But could you really blame him? The prosecution was building a case based pretty much solely on circumstantial evidence. But they were winning. It made me think of all the people not nearly as lucky as Darlie. And if you're like, hold up, she doesn't seem lucky, then hear me out. If a pretty white woman with a hotshot lawyer couldn't avoid the injustice of the system, well, then what about all the folks facing execution who've put their lives in the hands of a public defender? According to ACLU, and this is a straight-up quote, capital defendants are frequently represented by inexperienced, often overworked, and in many cases, incompetent lawyers. But honestly, it gets worse. A 2002 report from the Texas Defender Service found that public defenders are more likely to be assigned based on their reputation for moving cases quickly rather than on their ability and experience. The report goes on to conclude that one in three individuals incarcerated on death row will be executed without having the case properly investigated by a competent attorney or without having any claims of innocence or unfairness heard. The ACLU even points to the work of Columbia professor James Liebman, who examined every death penalty conviction between 1973 and 1995 and discovered a conviction reversal rate of 68%, with inadequate representation being a main contributing factor. But despite what Darlie experienced throughout her trial, it's not people who look like her bearing the disproportionate brunt of this injustice. 
And that's because it's Black folks who, despite making up only 13% of the U.S. population, represent 41% of those sitting on death row, according to a 2020 NAACP report. But when a system is truly broken, even society's most privileged may not be able to escape its injustice. And so the prosecution continued to add to their mountain of circumstantial evidence against Darley by arguing that at the time of the murders, the Rudiers had been in a dire financial situation. According to journalist Skip Hollinsworth, in the spring of 1995, the Rudiers' business was floundering. They were behind on mortgage and owed $10,000 to the IRS and another $12,000 to credit card companies. That dream lifestyle they had been building, it was crumbling. And Darley saw her children as threats to her lavish lifestyle. Or so said the state. According to an ABC 2020 documentary, Darley claimed that the business had hit a slow period. Sure, but that was not unusual. But I think, for me, bigger than that, killing your kids over $22,000 worth of debt and a few missed bills? It seems hard to believe. In today's dollars, the Rudiers, IRS, and credit card debt would be around 36 k And maybe it's my Gen Z millennial outlook, but in the 21st century, where according to Experian, the average American has over $90,000 worth of debt, 36 k It seems like a bad situation, definitely, but not murderously bad. Don't get me wrong, money problems are a major stressor, but... As I saw many times throughout my research, it still leaves so many questions unanswered. From documentaries to Reddit threads to feature pieces like Skip Hollinsworth's of Texas Monthly, they all want to know the same things. If it was really about the money, then why target only Devin and Damon and leave baby Drake, who surely required a lot of money and attention, completely unharmed? In fact, why target her sons at all, given their funeral expenses would end up exceeding their life insurance policies by thousands of dollars? Why not Darren, whose life insurance policy was worth a whopping $800,000? All of the circumstantial and character evidence, the hospital staff who didn't think she mourned appropriately, the diary entry where she contemplated suicide, discussion of her vacations, clothing, and breast implants, the silly string video, the money problems— All of it made way for the little physical evidence they did have to appear all the more compelling. The bread knife with the singular microfiber that appeared similar to the fibers that made up the window screen. The undisturbed dust on the windowsill. And, interestingly, a theory about the blood spatter found at the scene. The prosecution called Tom Bevel, a bloodstain pattern analyst who testified that the blood spatter found at the scene supported the state's claim that the crime scene had been staged by Darley. Despite two separate blood spatter experts who reviewed Darley's case and came to radically different conclusions from Bevel, the defense would not call any expert witnesses of their own to provide a counter-narrative. I have to admit, at first glance, Bevel's testimony feels really compelling. That is, until I discovered that blood pattern analysis is so highly controversial. In fact, the Texas Observer reports that in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences released, and I quote, the most extensive study ever conducted of forensic evidence in American courtrooms. I had to check out the study for myself, and when I did, I was pretty shocked. The authors concluded that in their words, the opinions of bloodstained pattern analysts are more subjective than scientific. In addition, they say, Many bloodstain pattern analyst cases are prosecution-driven or defense-driven, with targeted requests that can lead to context bias. Their conclusion is stark. The uncertainties associated with blood spattern analysis are enormous. 
but perhaps even that can be overlooked. Blood spatter analysis is still admissible in courts, and Bevel is an expert, right? Well, sort of. He's considered an expert, but maybe not a good one? He's a member of the FBI Scientific Working Group on Bloodstain Pattern Analysis, and Bevel had testified for prosecutors all over the country, but he's got more than a few stains on his record. Blood pattern testimony from Bevel had been key to convincing defendants in a number of botched cases, including the now-exonerated Tim Masters, David Cam, Ron Williamson, and Dennis Fritz. All men who spent years in prison for murders they didn't commit. I couldn't help but mark down Bevel as another witness that looked stronger for the prosecution than perhaps they ought of. And for all the witnesses the state did call, almost as notable was the one they chose not to. The lead detective, Jimmy Patterson. Remember that tape of the prayer service? You know, the one recorded before the silly string video at the boys' gravesite? The one the defense never submitted. Well, apparently, it was captured at lead detective Patterson's directive. The Rowlett police were so convinced that Darley was their perpetrator that they had wiretapped Damon and Devon's grave, hoping to catch Darley making a graveside confession. Unfortunately for them, the wiretapping would yield investigators nothing more than a potential felony charge, because as it turns out, the hidden surveillance was placed with zero court approval. No order, no warrant. The prosecution never called Patterson or his fellow officer, Chris Froch, to the stand in order to ensure they wouldn't run the risk of self-incrimination. To his credit, Doug Mulder wasn't going to let them off the hook that easy. He wasted no time calling both officers to testify for the defense instead. But it was to little avail. When questioned about the tape, both officers would plead the fifth. The defense would continue to call their own witnesses. Folks who knew Darley in real life, they all spoke well of her. A forensic psychiatrist who, according to Skip Hollinsworth of Texas Monthly, interviewed Darley for more than 10 hours after she was arrested and concluded that he felt Darley was truthful and likely experiencing traumatic amnesia common after events like these, and explain her inability to remember the details of the crime. Dr. DeMaio, who argued that Darley's wounds were unlikely to be self-inflicted. Mulder presented arguments he hoped would convince the jury, offering them the sock found 75 yards from the Rudier home and pointing out the difficulty of the state's proposed timeline of events. There just wasn't enough time, he claimed, for Darley to stage a crime scene. And then the defense did something rarely attempted. They called Darley herself to testify. A risky move, for sure, but her testimony started off well enough that I wonder if they believed maybe for a moment that they had made the right decision. But when it's the prosecution's turn for cross-examination, things take a hard left turn. Darley appeared defensive and upset, crying in a way that the prosecution tried to paint as frustration at being caught. Being emotional on the stand during your own murder trial is understandable, but unhelpful for your defense. You have such little control over how the jury will perceive you. It's why testifying in your own defense is so rarely done. Darley's testimony, not great. But her defense team and family were still confident. The state's case was nearly all circumstantial. The defense rests, never presenting the prayer service tape or refuting the bread knife, never calling their own blood pattern expert. When the prosecutor, Greg Davis, gives his closing argument, he tells the jury that in Damon and Devin's final moments, the last thing they each saw was their killer, their own mother. At this point, Darley could no longer contain her emotions. 
Liar, she yelled. You are a liar. I did not kill my kids. Davis finishes his statement nonetheless, and I can't help but wonder if he was maybe pleased rather than flustered by Darley's outburst. Perhaps it fit the narrative they wanted to paint from the beginning. And that's the thing about cases like this. The jury wants to see a grieving mother, but grieve too much and you just might look guilty. With the trial concluded and the jury deliberating, all that was left was to wait. Dallas news writer Wayne Carter reported that as the time passed, Darley sat in her holding cell chatting with her defense team, occasionally coming to the window to wave at her family on the lawn below. Carter wrote of a particularly tender moment when Darren could be seen looking up at Darley. Locking eyes with her, he gestured his thumb towards the street, mouthing, Come on, let's go. Then he raised one finger up. One more day, he says. Darley nodded and used her finger to spell the name of their youngest son. D-R-A-K-E. Drake. She wanted to see him. Child Protective Services says no, so Darren returns instead with a large color picture, holding it up so Darley can see her son. When I was close to finishing today's episode, I looked at all the evidence presented at trial and I didn't quite know what to think. The state's case was my kind assessment? Less than stellar. But also, the defense provided such little definitive proof of her innocence. I tossed around the thought in my head. Had I known only what the jury had known, would I believe she was innocent? I'm unsure. And again, my mind turns back to all the mistakes made by her defense. And then suddenly, I remember the worry Darley had had going into trial. That it wouldn't be the state needing to prove her guilt. That it would instead be her defense, burdened to prove her innocence. And then it clicked. It didn't matter if the defense couldn't prove her definitively innocent. I was asking the wrong question. In the United States criminal justice system, the burden of proof is supposed to lie with the prosecution. The question posed to a jury is not, do you believe the defendant is innocent? The question is, are you left with even an ounce of reasonable doubt? And if there was one thing I could say for certain, this case was overflowing with doubt. The jury deliberated for nine hours during which it said they watched the Silly String video no less than seven times. When they emerged, they had their verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, Darlie Lynn Rudier, guilty of the offense of capital murder. A few days later, she'd know her punishment. Death by lethal injection. And that's where this story ends. Or at least it's where we might end if this was a different show. For so many folks, these stories end with conviction. The good guys catch the bad guy and the bad guy gets locked away. But the truth is a lot messier because for Darlie, for Darren, for Drake, for their family and friends, life goes on. And Darlie's conviction represents not the end of the book, but the start of another devastating chapter. Like Darlie, millions of people have experienced incarceration in this country, but still, the majority of us have not. And many of us never truly consider what prison might be like. For those in society lucky enough to not be touched by incarceration, prison becomes this black hole for the forgotten and disposed of. Life beyond the barbed wire is deemed too insignificant for real consideration. But some, like Darlie and her family, aren't so lucky. I want to tell you a bit about that now. Every day for the past 23 years, Darlie has woken up in a small, narrow cell. 
60 square feet to be exact. The room is not much bigger than my own bathroom. The walls are stark white made of cinder block. A small grated window on the back wall is the only portal to the outside world. In one corner is a small metal stool. In another, a shiny metal toilet with no lid. Pushed against the wall is a firm and thin-looking mattress which sits atop a simple metal frame. The ground, a cool gray cement, is the opposite of homey. The prison is named Mountain View, but as the observer's Ruth Hill describes, there is no mountain, and from the prison's death row, there is no view. Lucky for Darley, Texas's women's death row is air-conditioned. And I say lucky because in Texas, where temperatures often rise into the triple digits, air conditioning is often denied to the incarcerated. In fact, according to a 2019 Texas Tribune article, despite nearly two dozen heat-related deaths since 1998 and at least 56 heat-related illnesses in 2019 alone, 75% of Texas prisons still lack air conditioning. As I learned about how Darley has spent her years in prison, I couldn't help but think about the inevitability of life, how the days continue to pass even in the face of immense tragedy. Darley's oldest two sons are gone, but Drake isn't, and Darley is still his mother. Darley would tell journalist Skip Hollinsworth in 2002 that even in prison, she liked to read Parenting Magazine. In fact, she had a monthly subscription. Eager for Drake's visit, she was reading Harry Potter, so they could discuss the plot. As the days have turned into months and the months into years, Drake has grown up only ever seeing his mother through a sheet of bulletproof glass, a reality that would persist and persist and persist through all his major life events, including when at 17, he was diagnosed with cancer. Though thankfully, according to AP, he's now in remission. Drake's experience is heartbreaking, but not uncommon. The sentencing project reported in 2018 that One in 12 American children have experienced parental incarceration. Darley and Darren would actually stay married for many years before making the mutual decision to divorce in 2011. Darren maintains his belief that Darley is innocent, and Darley's mom would tell Betsy Blaney of the Associated Press that the two still love one another and that the state was to blame for the destruction of their marriage. She added, It's just time for him to try to move on and try to find some happiness. In the years since Darley's trial, many folks have changed their mind on her guilt. A juror, Charlie Samford, who spoke with the Texas Center for Community Journalism about the deep regret he feels regarding Darley's conviction, is one of them. Even Barbara Davis, who wrote a scathing indictment of Darley in a true crime book published only a year after Darley's conviction, has, according to Fort Worth Weekly, done a complete 180. Now convinced of Darley's innocence, Davis calls the book her biggest shame. Darley and her team of defense lawyers have been in the process of working on her appeal, a lengthy process according to the Death Penalty Information Center, which reports that most people on death row will wait more than 10 years for execution or exoneration as they exhaust the notoriously slow appeals process. Sadly, more than half of the exonerations since 2013 have taken 25 years or more. And if you find those numbers as horrifying as I do, you wouldn't be alone. Many opponents of the death penalty argue that this long wait exacts profound psychological stress on the convicted as they sit for years in near constant uncertainty, a punishment many say is cruel and unusual. According to the Altoona Mirror, Darley's appeal process has been on hold for more than a decade as her defense team awaited the results of new DNA testing. With the testing now finally complete, 
Darley was scheduled for a post-conviction hearing in July of 2020. But unfortunately, the hearing was postponed indefinitely as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. When the same woman convicted and sentenced to death within eight months of her son's murders has now sat on death row for more than two decades awaiting the results of her appeal, you can't help but wonder if justice is only swift when it wants to be. I may not be able to say with 100% certainty that Darlie Rudier is innocent, but I can say I deeply believe that far too often our society's obsession with punishment comes disguised as a pursuit for justice. When Damon and Devin died, the Rudier family was changed irreparably forever. In the months and years that have followed, I wonder what role the state played in ensuring any justice at all for a family who had already lost so much. At the beginning of this episode, I described a video clip I watched of Darlie dancing in the kitchen. The video, I said, sat firmly in the before of her life. In Skip Hollinsworth's incredible piece for Texas Monthly, Maybe Darlie Didn't Do It, he paints a vivid picture of the woman Darlie was during that before time. A person known to cook meals for neighbors going through a rough time. Even once making a mortgage payment for a neighbor with cancer. Someone who loved letting all the neighborhood kids come over to play. Hollinsworth even notes that after her arrest, these same kids believed so deeply in her innocence that they made signs declaring so for their front yards. Much later in my research, I read a piece by Kathy Cruz for the Hood County News, and I couldn't help but find pieces of the same Darley. But this time, the description was of a woman who now lived in the after. During her incarceration, Darley has been known to reach out to officials on behalf of other women on death row, even once writing to Texas Center of Community Journalism, alerting them that another woman incarcerated alongside her was not being notified of developments in her case that were pushing her towards a quicker execution date. Cruz even reports that Darley has been written up for a few minor infractions during her time at Mountain View, including, quote, soliciting a prison staffer to make a phone call on behalf of another inmate and having items in her cell that are not available at the prison commissary, such as magazines, tweezers, and cocoa mix. Prison may not have changed everything about who Darley is, but it has changed everything about her life. I've thought of Darley and her family every day for weeks, and in that time, I couldn't help but take many lessons with me. But above the rest, one stood out most strongly. But I want to be clear about what this lesson is not. It's not a lesson to be distrustful of your neighbors, not a lesson that anyone can contain deep darkness. It's not a lesson to always stay vigilant. But instead, the lesson is this. If the state can justify executing a woman who may be innocent, then perhaps it's not each other we should fear as much as the systems that can kill us and call it justice. If you're in the United States and you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Or you can visit their website at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. I want to take a moment to bring special attention to a few resources that have been absolutely instrumental in the creation of this episode. Skip Hollinsworth's investigative piece, Maybe Darley Didn't Do It, from the July 2002 edition of Texas Monthly, and DarleyFacts.com, a website maintained by Darley's supporters, which provides access to most of the primary documents from this case, including trial transcripts, photos, descriptions of all the people most important to this case, old newspaper clippings, and more. Links to these and other resources used for this episode are available and can be found on our website, truercrimepodcast.com. To learn more about Darlie's case, including a letter she wrote to her supporters in 2018, visit darlieslastdefense.com. This website was created and maintained by two of Darlie's attorneys, Steve Cooper and Richard Smith. 
If you're interested in learning more about wrongful convictions in the United States and ways to help, I highly recommend you check out The Innocence Project, an organization whose mission is to free the staggering numbers of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. You can learn more and donate at innocenceproject.org.